may be seated. Amen. And as you're seated, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, or turn them on and open up, we'll be in Isaiah 49 first, then we're going to jump into John 20. And if you can't tell by just having your eyes open in your neighborhood or eyes open when you're at Walmart, Halloween is coming. And this past week, one of the kids was telling me they were so excited because they were going to be a unicorn for Halloween. And uh, I got to inform her that that was a, a biblical character that there are unicorns in the Bible. And said, so you can go look. Now, you'll have to have your parents pull up uh, like Bible Gateway or something, and you can do a search in, in the King James. So you have to look in the King James, and you'll see there's about 10 to 12 verses that talk about unicorns. And so her mind was blown. And uh, the reason why the translators talk about unicorns is they were working in, you know, 1600s with the, you know, the most up-to-date uh, information that they had in their location of Europe. And uh, just uh, about a century before, Marco Polo had done his great exploration uh, of the Far East, and uh, he had discovered unicorns. And so, you know, when he went to the East, Cody, pull up that first picture. Um, this is what he had in mind that they were going to find, you know, white horse with the horn. And they even, you know, everyone knew that if you wanted to tame a unicorn, you needed a uh, chaste maiden who would come and the unicorn corn would lay its head in her lap and then she'd be able to tame it. And then you know, everybody knew that. So they even had their chaste maiden always coming along uh, the trip once they found the unicorn. And, uh, and then they found one. And this is how he writes about it in his journals. Uh, he says, "'Tis altogether different from what we fancied. The hair is like that of a buffalo, feet like those of an elephant and a horn in the middle of the forehead, which is black and very thick. They do no mischief, however, with the horn, but with their tongue alone, which is covered all over with long, strong prickles. And when they savage anyone, they crush them under their knees, and then they'll rasp them over and over with the tongue. The head resembles that of a wild boar, and they carry it even bent towards the ground. They delight much to abide in the mire and the mud. So they weren't quite expecting this. What they actually got was this. <laughs> That's what they saw. And so they didn't have the categories to adjust what they were experiencing with their expectations. So the unicorn is not quite what we had in mind, but it's still, it's still a unicorn. And so I would just think about that dynamic, how often there are certain categories you have in your mind, and then when you experience something, it can be really hard to shift and adjust. And actually what we're going to talk about this morning is what's presented to us in the gospel and in Isaiah and John is the exact opposite experience. What comes to us is in the, in the beauty and the majesty of something like a unicorn, but because of our experience and what we've seen and gone through, they can't adjust to see it and they think, oh, that's not real. That's only this that's a rhino, not a unicorn. And so we're doing a series where we're looking at all year. Our theme uh, is we want you to experience the transforming power of the gospel. So you can see that written on the front of your bulletin. It's one of our desires for you. And if you're going to experience the transforming power of the gospel, there's just a couple things you need. You, um, the gospel comes to us as word. It's news. So there's things you need to know. You need to have kind of clarity of mind. But it's not just news. It's not just truth. It's also a power that grips your life. 
And so you need to be renewed and refreshed in your soul. And then not only is it uh, renew and refresh your soul, it also is a life. There's things you're supposed to live. So if you're going to experience it, you need sound doctrine, renewal of the Holy Spirit, faithful living. You need God's truth to capture, uh, to uh, bring clarity to the mind, capture the heart, then compel your life. And what we've seen the last several weeks is that the first thing we need to know if we're going to experience His power is that we need to know that we've been created in love and called for a purpose. So we have to know that it has to capture us and then change how we live. And then now we're moving into a second phase where another thing we need to know, we need to know how sin is trying to bind and break us. It wants to keep us bound and then keep us broken. And the power of the gospel is to free us and to heal us. And so what we're going to look at this morning is one of the ways that uh, sin tries, it kind of causes us to talk to talk. And so look at Isaiah 49. If you have your Bibles, look at Isaiah 49. And let's pick up the text of Isaiah 49. We'll start in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you to waste go out from you. And lift up your eyes around and see. They gather and come to you as I live, declares the Lord. And you shall put them on as an ornament and you shall bind them on as a bride does. So Isaiah 49 is set up. Now you women are going through Isaiah in your Bible study. You're seeing kind of the tremendous uh, vision that's given to Isaiah to come to the people from 40 uh, to 66. And Isaiah 49 is uh, it's either the second or the third of the servant song where a servant has come and it's celebrated celebrating this great act of redemption that the, the servant of the Lord is going to accomplish. And in 1 through 12, it's painting a comprehensive picture that God's original servant, Israel, was uh, he intended, he created and called them to be a light to the nations and to be a funnel by which God's blessing came through them to the world. But in 1 through 12, it talks about how they, they have fallen. They have failed. And then he's going to pick them up and he's going to send another servant who will be the true light to the nations and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And it celebrates that in verse 6. And then verse 8, it celebrates that this is his time of favor, that even though they've fallen, he's going to come and he's going to pick them up and he's going to dust them off and he's going to set their feet back on the rock and he's going to renew them and restore them. So it paints this comprehensive picture of this restoration that the servant's going to bring. And then it comes to the culminating kind of crescendo in verse 13. And here's how they and all the world should respond. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. So it's this call that heaven and earth, he's the creator of heaven and earth. He's creator of the spiritual, the physical, where God dwells, where we dwell. And he's bringing them back together. And the unified restoration of all creation joining into the song. 
and it's going to start in the mountains. The mountains are the place where heaven and earth touch. So this is the place where worship happens. This is the first place where uh, heaven and earth comes down. It's kind of like the, the discussion that Jesus had with the woman in the well in John 4. I mean, she, everybody knows you worship at a mountain. The only question is, which mountain do you worship at? Do you worship in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Which one? Everybody knows this is where you worship. This is where heaven and earth touch. And so the mountain, the mountain of the Lord, Zion, is supposed to be the epicenter of where the, the good news of salvation is to boom and radiate into all the ends of the earth. And so it's this call to uh, Israel, get back up. You're going to be renewed. You're going to be restored. You're going to fulfill your original vocation in life. And then notice how they respond in verse 14. Zion is the place where this celebration is to go forth. Actually, look back in 13 and notice why. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's had compassion on the afflicted. So he's brought comfort. He's brought his mercy, compassion. And so how did they hear? In one sense, he's holding up this picture of a unicorn and say, that's coming. You can experience it. You can have it. But they can't see it. Look at verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And so the first thing we see is this is how despair talks. This is how depression talks. This is how discouragement talks. They're unresponsive. It's such a deep anticlimax. They should be singing and celebrating, and yet they're sulking. And this is what despair does. You know, and in some sense, everyone knows what it's like to kind of talk like this. You know, there's a continuum, this, this story, because they, they should be celebrating the fact that God's salvation is going to radiate to the ends of the earth. But instead, they're just looking at their own situation in the immediate moment and thinking, well, that's great for them. But what about us? What about me? What about us right now? It's almost like you could almost imagine it's almost like if the picture is like God has two sons. One of them has gone out to the far country and has squandered his life, and he knows that he's coming back, and he wants to get the party ready for them. And the son who stayed is, well, that's great for him, but what about me? He never done anything like this for me. And, you know, no matter where we are in life, we, we've experienced some of that sting. You know, as kids, it's what you experience at your friend's birthday party when they open up that thing that you really wanted and you know you're supposed to be happy, but oh, man, I wish I would have gotten that too. I mean, you know what it's like when the boy that you hope gives you attention starts talking to your roommate or when it's your neighbor's kid that gets the part in the play that you wanted for yours. Or when the promotion goes to your team member that you know didn't do nearly as much work as you did. I mean, come on. And so we know what that's like. I've been reading a fabulous book called uh, England Before the Time of the Wesleys, and it's talking about the great transformation before and after that happened in England during the First Great Awakening. But one of the unique undercurrents in the storylines is that for over two generations, many of the uh, kind of Puritan heirs, the dissenters, were, were desperately praying that the Lord would rend the heavens and come down and that he would send revival and he would renew their land and he would restore and redeem the church. And then all of a sudden, to their shock, it starts to happen 
But it happens through this 22-year-old strange preacher who's an Anglican. Like, how could God bless them and not us? Like, we're the faithful. We've been praying for that. All right, why? And it created some disillusionment. Like, how could the blessing come there and not to us? That's exactly what Israel's experienced. Oh, that's great that salvation's going to the end of the earth. But what about me? What about us? And then notice how God responds. How does mercy talk back in verse 15? Pull up verse 15 if we got it. And you can see God responds, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. But I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. You know, I love, it's so intriguing to see how does God counsel them? How does he talk back to them? Uh, I'm always convicted about the way God talks and when I think about comparing it to how I would talk. Because notice he's in the middle of his celebration about what he's going to do and call them to celebrate. And they interrupt him right in the middle of it. And he doesn't ignore their interruption. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't say, how dare you interrupt me? Can't you tell I'm speaking? Thank you very much. Uh, what's wrong with you? Why are you pouting? Why are you uh, sulking? Come on, suck it up. Let's go. He pauses and he engages with them. And then he addresses them and he gives them two things. He gives them kind of a metaphor or an image to hold on to. And then he gives them an action. He shows them a picture of something that he's done. He wants them to think. And notice the metaphor. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. You know, their first critique is that we've been forgotten. The Lord has forgotten us. Actually, sorry, I meant to put, look back in verse 14 and notice what they say about the Lord. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. If you notice, if your Bible, if the editors kind of help, the first Lord should be all caps. That's Yahweh, the God that we know personally, intimately, who's redeemed us, who brought us out of the land of slavery, who walked us through the wilderness, who planted us in the land. He is the one. He's forsaken us. And then the Lord, lower caps, that's Adonai, the strong, the mighty one, the sovereign, the one who could restore us, who could show his power on our behalf. He's forgotten and so what's so interesting is they know the names, they know the names, but they're not living in the reality of them. It's, it, it's not moving from what they have here to their experience. And then God addresses that head on. He says, you think I've forgotten you? Can a, can a woman forget her nursing child? He takes an image, a metaphor, and says, this is what it's like, one that's bound by the most intimate dependence and shared life. Now, I'm not going to tread too far onto the thin ice of describing the experience of nursing mothers. I've only gotten to witness that from afar. But you know, the, the question is, can a woman forget her nursing child? And all of you women who've experienced that, no, that would be pretty hard. It's practically impossible. Impossible emotionally. It is impossible physically. Like, your body won't let you forget that you're nursing a child. And he wants them to make the connection of the most intimate relationship he can imagine. And then he says, look, 
behold, look. So he doesn't just give them an image. He gives them, he shows them a picture and he says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And this is an interesting word. It's the same word in 55 that talks about being pierced. So I pierced you, but you could turn like engraved or cut. So it's kind of similar to how you would get a tattoo in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, you know, tattoos were not things you got to kind of express your individuality. You would get a tattoo to declare to the world who you belong to. So slaves got tattoos. And so it's unique because first, it's what is he doing here? I mean, like slaves could get their master's name tattooed on them somewhere, but masters would never tattoo their slaves' names on them. And then what is he showing them? And so for 600 years, the Israelite uh, rabbis would just kind of think like, this, this is an incredible image, but what does it actually mean? Could God actually, like, what is he showing us when he shows these scars on his hands that's meant to demonstrate his love? Now, with that in mind, I want you to turn to John 20, because for 600 years, they just thought it was a metaphor. It's just a picture. And then on the second, in essence, Easter, one week after Jesus rose from the dead, there was an Israelite who would be the first to be able to see the scars in his hands. Look at uh, John chapter 20, starting verse 24. This is the story of Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So here's Thomas, and somebody is telling him a story that we've seen this unicorn, and it's bright, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing, and you will never believe it. And he's like, uh-uh. I, I, I'm no fool. I've seen rhinoceroses before. That ain't no unicorn. Unless I see it myself, I am not going to believe. Now, John will tell you in a minute in his, his gospel that Jesus did so many things, all the books in the whole world couldn't fill them up. So everything John tells you is very intentional. And his whole book is designed to move you to a place where you, just like Thomas, uh, sit in doubt and wonder and question. And he wants to bring us to a place where we believe. And in John chapter 20, this is the fourth scene that's bringing these incredible reversals. The first scene is grief is turned to joy, and then fear is turned to mission, and then now doubt and despair and disappointment is turned into hope and life and joy. And so a couple things to think about Thomas as you do. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when he came. You know, I've always had a soft spot for Thomas, and I think it's because I'm really thankful that he said what he did because I probably wouldn't have the courage if I was there with them, but I'd be thinking the same thing as he was. And if you know anything about Thomas, you know he's normally known in history as, what's he known as? Who is he? He's doubting Thomas. He's the one who doubts. But you look, even in John, you get a couple snapshots of him. And like in verse 11, I mean, chapter 11, when uh, the heat is on and they know if they go back towards Jerusalem that uh, they're, they're going to be taken and Jesus is probably going to die. And then Jesus says, let's go. We got to go to Lazarus. We're going to Bethany. And Thomas says, all right, let's go. We're all going to die, but let's go with him. So, I mean, that shows a certain level of courage and he's going he's gonna to stick with him. 
And then when Jesus, on the night before um, the crucifixion, when he's giving them the great uh, the talk in the upper room, Thomas is the one who starts to sense that he's going away and he doesn't want him to leave and says, Lord, where are you going? We don't know the way. We can't follow you. I want to stick with you and I don't know where you're going. What is the way I need to go? And then Jesus tells his famous, I am the way, the truth, the life. And then here in verse 20, he says, unless I see, like I'm not being taken in. I've already put all my hopes, dreams, aspirations in this, and I'm not letting another disappointment bring me down. But you look, you know, what caused his unbelief? It was kind of this, this you know, unholy, unhelpful trifecta of he had intellectual issues. Like he'd never seen anything like this before. It was really hard to conceptualize. But then he also had the circumstantial difficulties. I mean, he wasn't there and then had just the experiential difficulties. We're talking about things that you don't normally experience. But notice it says he was not with them when Jesus came. This, John's very intentional to show you that the risen Christ uh, comes to his disciples on Sunday when they gather. It's one of the reasons we still worship on Sunday, because he makes a unique presence when his people come together. And on the first Easter Sunday, Thomas wasn't there. The first Easter Sunday church service, he missed. And they go, where was he? But he wasn't there. And then what he missed when Jesus came, because Jesus came, stood in the midst of them, said, peace be with you, showed him his hands and his, his, his wounds. He breathed upon them the Holy Spirit. He gave them their commission that now they were going to be his witnesses and they were going to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth. He gives them all of these things and he wasn't there. What he missed is he missed the proof. He missed the peace. He missed his purpose. He missed the power that was going to come and the Holy Spirit. And then he didn't believe his word. Notice in 25, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he says, uh, unless I see myself, I will not believe. So it's his despair has led him to unbelief. And he's rejecting the word of his closest friends. And you just think about what that, that unbelief, that discouragement, that doubt uh, caused in him. It caused relational strain. I can't imagine what it was like that entire week because his, you know, the other 11 uh, or other 10 disciples come exploding with probably rapturous joy. We have seen the Lord. And he's like, uh-uh, I am not believing even you guys. I wonder if they thought, well, we're not off to the greatest start because he told us we're going to be witnesses to the end of the earth. And even this guy doesn't believe us. We're, <laughs> we might need some more help here. <laughs> so we got the relational strain that's going to cause, got identity loss because he wasn't there. I mean, he doesn't know who he is. And then look in verse 26, how Jesus comes. He appears. Now, eight days later, that's a significant mark. It happened on the first on that Sunday. The eighth day is the first day of new creation. Why they gather? Seven days is old creation. Eight days starts new creation. On the eighth day, his disciples were inside again. But this time, Thomas was with them. So even though in his doubt and discouragement, he's going to stay with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place them in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Jesus comes and he comes right in the midst of his people. You know, if Thomas wanted to encounter Jesus, he had to go to where Jesus was. And Jesus promised to come where his people gather and his word is proclaimed. 
So you want to encounter him, you got to go where he is. You know, it's kind of like if you want to encounter Mickey Mouse, you're probably not going to find him if you go to SeaWorld. <laughs> probably won't find him at Universal. You want to see him, you got to go to where he is. So Thomas is going to go to where he is, and then notice what does Jesus do, or where does Jesus go? He stands right in the middle of them. You know, the one he comes, the word has become flesh, and he's going to dwelt, dwell among us, in the middle of us. And so when any Christians gather, if his word is not central, if his person is not central, then we've missed what's central. He, he dwells in the midst, his presence, his words, his peace. So he comes into the middle, and then notice what he says, peace be with you. And I love this because there's no small talk. There's no like, hey, what's up, boys? How was your week? Anybody see that game last night? Oh, I thought for sure the donkeys were going to get it. No, he goes right to, peace be with you, then looks right at Thomas. Put your finger here. He addresses his doubt. He addresses his unbelief. He doesn't beat around the bush. And there's this beautiful back and forth parable, parallels where everything Thomas says, unless I, and then Jesus says, then do. Unless I, then do. Unless I, then do. Here it is. Here it is. And then I love how Thomas responds. Thomas answered in verse 28. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is a paradigmatic confession of faith. Thomas is the first to behold the nail-pierced hands and then to confess his belief. The first of billions throughout history. And notice what's identified. The first is um, uh, Lord and God. He expresses truth about who Jesus is. He's the Lord. He's God. But then also grace, my. You are mine. I am yours. My Lord my God. So if we're going to experience this kind of belief, if we're going to experience what Thomas experienced, what do we need to do? How can we accept the same thing? And first, we've got to go where Jesus is. We've got to seek him amongst his people in his word, go to where he is. And then we have to listen to his apostles. Part of Thomas's problem is he wasn't listening to the people who were authorized to tell him about what they had experienced. And that's what John tells you his book is. Notice if verse 30, I don't know if we have verse 30, but you can read down. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. And what John is telling you is he's saying, come and look. This is what we've seen from the beginning. This is what we've seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, and touched with our hands. And they both say, look, you want to know that he loves you. Look at the wounds. That's not just a metaphor. On the cross, it became a reality. And then notice how Thomas, he drops his conditions and then drops to his knees. He didn't actually touch. He said, unless I touch and unless I put my fingers in the holes, I'm not going to believe. Once he sees Jesus, he didn't actually do those things. He just dropped down, dropped his conditions and began to worship. And so many people, when we come to Jesus, if we're honest, we come with conditions. If then. If you do this, then I will. And a real encounter with him, those conditions fall. And we fall down. And my, my Lord and my God. 
And then what comes when we believe is we experience life. Life in his name. The whole gospel of John is meant to point you so you can experience life. It's holding up this image of this unicorn and saying, look, it's true. Believe. In chapter 1, it gives you seven different names that he, John wants you to believe. This is the Word. The Word became flesh, and the Word was not only with God, the Word was God, and in Him we have life and light. And He's the Son. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's our great rabbi who teaches us the Word of God, who Moses and all the prophets spoke about. And then each chapter gives you a different window on something we're supposed to believe and find life in his name. In chapter 2, he's the one who brings the new wine and celebrates the new and clears the new temple so we can have a celebratory feast that Isaiah was calling us to. Sing and celebrate. Shout it from the mountains. In chapter 3, he's the one who declares to us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that if we believe in him, we will not perish and we can be born again. We can have new life. And in chapter 4, he's the one who gives, is the giver of life-giving water that if you taste from him, you'll never thirst again. And then chapter 5, he tells you that he's the one who brings these things, but he's also the judge of heaven and earth. So we stand before him. Chapter 6, he's the bread of life. Chapter 7, again, he's the water of life. Chapter 8, he's the light of the world. Chapter 10, he's the good shepherd who knows his sheep and they know his voice and they come. And then chapter 11, he's the one who is the defeater of death. Death. And if you believe in him, he is the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in him will never taste death. And Thomas is telling you, I've seen him. I've seen his hands. You come, you're staring. That's not a rhinoceros you're looking at. It's an actual unicorn. And you can believe in him and find life. And one of the reasons every week we take communion because communion is our weekly reminder. This is, once again, Jesus extending his wounded hand and saying, See, first you've heard my word of promise. Now you can taste and enact my action of grace and mercy. And just as he reached out to Thomas then, he's reaching out to you now. And the same thing that Thomas wanted to know, this tells us, Thomas wanted to know, I don't know the way to where you are. I want to be where you are. And he said, this is the path back into my presence. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through the pathway that I opened up. And I opened it up by shedding my blood on the cross so you can receive the forgiveness of your sins. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this represents my body, broken for you. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of your sins. This is my testimony. This is the example. This is the illustration. This is what I point to to show you that you have not been forsaken and you have not been forgotten. Lord, we thank you for the gift of mercy. I thank you for those who have gone before us, and I thank you for Thomas's doubts, because his doubts are so often my doubts. And I thank you for the way you loved him and the way you loved us to speak to us in our moments of discouragement and disappointment. When we say things like, 
the Lord has forgotten us. The Lord has forsaken us. So I pray for anyone who's come into this room this morning and they feel that. They feel like they've been forgotten. They feel like they've been forsaken. I pray that your word would speak a mighty truth that that is not true. That uh, in Christ, they're never forsaken. In Christ, they're never forgotten. So speak those words of life to them this way. This we pray.